Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is almost the end of April, April the 28th, 2021. And I have to admit, uh, rather perhaps cruelly, that we in Northern California, I'm in San Francisco at the moment, uh, are rather enjoying what was a, a profoundly, dismally failed Oscars last weekend, mm. according to the Huffington Post. Uh, the 2020 Oscars will almost certainly be the lowest rated Oscars ever. Uh, CNBC says the Oscars were a well-intentioned mess. I'm not sure whether that's uh, even bigger insult, um, if it's well-intentioned. Uh, Variety, the mouthpiece of Hollywood, suggested that the Oscar ratings tanked. Do the Academy Awards need another makeover? It's rather like an old Hollywood actress who always needs makeovers. And perhaps the worst thing of all is that Arnold Schwarzenegger, one of California's great celebrity politicians and actors, said that the 2021 Oscars were boring. Well, you certainly can't say that for the uh, Oscars in 1975, uh, the 47th Academy Awards, uh, in which uh, Chinatown and The Godfather 2 were acclaimed. Um, uh, Bob Hope, Shirley MacLaine, Sammy Davis Jr. were all involved. And the interesting thing, of course, about the Oscars is that they're nostalgic. They always look back a year. So the 1975 Oscars were all about 1974. So what happened in 1974 to make the Oscars so splendid then? I'm very, very fortunate to have perhaps the world's leading authority on 1974. <laughs> 1974 in Hollywood, Los Angeles, uh, Ronald Brownstein. He's been on the show before. You'll know him as a political analyst rather than a, a cultural critic and historian. But this book, Rock Me on the Water, 1974, the year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics, has made uh, Ron Brownstein also a major uh, cultural critic. Uh, Ron, I apologize for the, the rather lengthy intro mm -hmm. there. And I, and I can't uh, resist uh, being up in San Francisco enjoying Los Angeles' shame. Rather than thinking about the Oscars in 2021, though, let's go back to 1975. What was so spectacular about the Oscars then? You, you write about them in your book. Yeah, I mean, the Oscars in 1975, and in some ways, as we'll get to, uh, parallels to today, really was a, a clash between generations that were uh, contesting for control uh, of Hollywood. Um, uh, first of all, you had these two Titanic movies, Godfather II and Chinatown, that came out in 1974. Chinatown was the favorite to win pretty much everything for most of the year until The Godfather Part II was released in December of 1974 with its really groundbreaking uh, a structure of cross-cutting between the young Vito Corleone and Michael Corleone, uh, and its deep commentary on, on American society is kind of endemically uh, corrupt at, at the upper levels. And of course, Chinatown 
which was a, a great movie considered to this day by some the greatest script ever, um, uh, you know, told that same story. I mean, it, when it was released, one of the reviewers described it as Watergate with real water. I mean, both of these movies were emblematic of this early 70s golden age in Hollywood in which the studios produced uh, this kind of surge of socially aware, socially critical movies, money more than they did before and, and probably and, and really many more than they than they did since. And, and Andrew, there was one other twist in, the, you know, kind of kind of making making this point in the in the 1975 Oscars. That was the year that the, the film Hearts and Minds, really the first major American <clears throat> documentary about our experience in Vietnam, won the best documentary. And Bert Schneider, who was a major character in my book, the producer of it, earlier the producer of Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces and The Last Picture Show, read a statement from uh, the North Vietnamese delegate to the peace talks, which led to a counter statement uh, from Bob Hope and Frank Sinatra and some ribbing from Warren Beatty backstage. So 1975 in many ways was the kind of the generational uh, gap, the generational conflict in Hollywood reduced to, to the stage at a single Oscars. Uh, the book, uh, Ron, is, is a wonderful read. It's an amazing read, actually. I mean, I wish we had a couple of hours to talk about it. Um, you dedicate the book to your L.A. girl. You grew up on the East Coast, yes. Have you always, but now you're living in L.A. What were you doing in 1974? Were you in the cinema watching Chinatown yeah. and Godfather 2 and listening uh, to Jackson Brown and, and, and Bob Dylan? Yeah, I, in 1974, I, I had just turned 16. Uh, and I was very much aware of the movies. Um, I, I was kind of a movie buff, used to go to the Bleecker Street Cinema, you know, in, in the Ville. I grew up in New York, as you said, used to go see the old movies, uh, the, the classics, uh, back when you had to go to a cinema to see them. And I think I was also very much aware of kind of the change on TV, in particular, All in the Family, which my father, I grew up, I don't know, it must have been 10, 15 miles from where All in the Family was set in Queens. And my father was an electrician, you know, I mean, he, he, uh, he identified more with Archie than with Mike. Um, and so I was aware of that. But like the idea for this as a book and, and kind of my awareness of uh, this moment as being an important confluence of both cultural forces and talent uh, really uh, emerged in stages. I, you know, I, I've spent most of my adult life as a reporter in Washington, but I also did live in L.A., once before, uh, late 80s, early 90s. And in that period, I wrote a book called The Power and the Glitter that was a history of the relationship between Hollywood and politics. And anyone, as you know, who writes anything about Hollywood recognizes that this period in the late 60s and the early 70s is considered the other golden age in Hollywood history, along with the years just before and after World War II, kind of Wizard of Oz through It's a Wonderful Life. And so when I moved back from Washington to L.A. in early 2014, I kind of had that understanding as, uh, you know, in my mental back pocket that there was this great period in the early 70s in movies. Um, and when I got out here, uh, I started then listening much more than I did in high school uh, to that, that California sound that had developed in the late 60s and early 70s, Linda Ronstadt and the Eagles and Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchells and, and even uh, the Dylan um, uh, uh, kind of uh, reunion tour with the band that, that happened in 1974 and the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young reunion tour that happened in 1974. So I, I, I remember being kind of struck that, hey, it's kind of interesting that all this musical innovation is happening at the same time at the, as the film innovation, but the last Tumblr really kicked, clicked into place about a year, maybe a year and a half after I got back to California, I went to a political event 
at Norman Lear's house. It was Elizabeth Warren doing kind of an early fundraising uh, kind of sounding for her presidential campaign. And I distinctly remember when I left that event thinking, hey, wait a minute. So Norman Lear was putting all the family and Maud and Good Times and Jefferson's on the air at the same time that the that the movie industry was having this kind of uh, revolution and the, and the, there was all this innovation going on in music. And Andrew, it was really at that point that I began to seriously investigate this period and found, I think, a story not only about uh, a historic influence of talent, which I think is comparable to New York in the 50s in the art world or Paris in the 20s in the literary world, but also a hinge point in our cultural and political history that kind of imbued a deeper meaning into what was happening uh, in L.A. in those years. Yeah, Ron, many people have described 2020 <laughs> as a hinge year as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm guessing a cultural historian in 30 years, when they write uh, about 2020, uh, perhaps we'll, we'll talk about, we've had Jessica uh, Bruder, the author of No Man mm -hmm. Land, the movie No Man Land, of course, was the star, if there was a star of this year's Oscars. Right. It's, it's a book in many ways about the death or the disappearance of geography. Your book is about geography, but a particular yeah. place at a particular time. Um, you write wonderfully about Los Angeles in the early 1970s. It, it kind of, reading the book kind of reminded me of, of watching a or the last Tarantino film mm. about uh, mm -hmm. Once mm -hmm. Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm not sure you have the... Uh, the vulgarity of Tarantino. Uh, but it, it, uh, Can I jump in right there? Andrew? Of course. I think it's interesting. The, the Tarantino movie is a lot like the Joan Didion and a lot of other magazine writers writing about L.A. in the late 60s. And all of them really focus on unraveling. In, in, in many ways, Manson seems the inevitable endpoint of what people would describe L.A. as in, in, in the late... In the and, and there is a connection with your film because, of course, Manson and Polanski and Chinatown yeah. were all connected. He, he's the backdrop. Uh, you know, Polanski's return to do Chinatown is the first time he comes back. But I think the story that I'm telling in the early... So, so, so much of what was written about L.A. in the late 60s and, and, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as a movie reflects this, kind of captures a sense of unraveling, this idea that like it was the extreme version of America coming apart in the late 60s. And Manson seems almost inevitable. If you go back and read Slouching Toward Bethlehem, Joan, Joan Didion's collection of essays about California in the mid to late 60s. And as I say, Manson, see, she, she obviously doesn't know Manson is coming, but something like Manson seems inevitable. The story I'm telling in the early 70s, I think we catch kind of the turn in the wave. And really, this is the story of something coalescing. And, and people in both movies, music, television, and even politics with Jerry Brown and Jane Fonda and Tom Hayden, feeling they are part of a wave that is gathering, a wave of change uh, that is kind of, you know, moving closer to the shore and then finally reaching the shore uh, in the early 1970s, culminating in 1974. Yeah. And, and, combination of demographic change, kind of economic incentives changing. Um, and in many ways, that is the parallel to what I see happening now, where you have both demographic change with Gen Z and the millennials, uh, you know, becoming the dominant generations in American life, but also streaming, changing the economics of the industry in a way that is allowing them to open up to more voices. I mean, you know, in a world where every movie had to make $400 million dollars, 
you know, not sure what happens to Nomadland, but in a world where you can just find a more of a niche audience on streaming, uh, these kind of more personal stories can get made again, like the early 70s. So in some ways, I think we could see a resurgence of the of the socially aware filmmaking that's kind of been buried beneath the superhero movies, right. as much as I love them, um, because the economic incentives are saving are, are, are changing and the demographics of the audience are changing. Right. It's really interesting you say that. It occurs to me... Um... Uh, you, 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 you talk about um, the, 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 uh, uh, this uh, uh, 1974 as, as, as the watershed year yeah. uh, between yeah. the 60s and the 70s and the way in which the values, the political ideology of the, of the 60s crept into mainstream American life. It reminds me of the Oscars of 2021 where the Chicago 7 is once again uh, getting yeah. a, a good hearing and Tom Hayden reappears. What's the difference, though, between our moment now, um, Ron, you're an authority on, on the politics of today and the politics of 1974, uh, the left politics, the reappearance of the left in mainstream American life? So I think there, there are some real similarities and there's one big difference. I think, you know, my story in the book is that in the early, the popular culture of the early 1970s on TV, things like All in the Family and MASH and Mary Tyler Moore, um, at the movies like Chinatown, like Godfather 1 and 2 and Five Easy Pieces and Carnal Knowledge uh, and the music, um, uh, that was the moment when much of the critique of American life that emerged in the 1960s was cemented into popular culture, never to be dislodged. I mean, ideas that seemed insurrectionary in the 60s, more suspicion of business and government, greater autonomy for women, uh, greater assertiveness uh, among uh, minority groups, that racial minority groups that had been uh, marginalized, new attitudes about family and sex. Um, in the 60s, if you go back and you look at the TVs and the movies, uh, you know, uh, the, the entertainment industry was doing their best to ignore that all of this was happening. But in the early, uh, I would argue that in the early, I argue in the book, in the early 1970s, under the pressure of having to respond to the baby boom, which was a growing share of their audience, um, th that wall came down. And suddenly TV, which had been giving us Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction and didn't get any closer to Vietnam than the Kale's Navy and uh, Hogan's Heroes and Gomer Pyle, there we were getting the bunkers on All in the Family and Hawkeye on, on MASH. And Mary Tyler Moore was not Laura Petrie from The Dick Van Dyke Show and obviously in all of the movies. So there was a generational change uh, that changed the economic incentives and opened the door to kind of a new, uh, uh, to, to voices that had long been excluded, including a lot of older folks, right? People like Robert Altman and Arthur Penn and Alan Pakula, great directors born in the 20s and 30s, <clears throat> excuse me, were able to make movies uh, that they were not able to make in 1964 and 1965 in that brief window. So, uh, Andrew, in a lot of ways, I think that is similar to today. As I said, we are living through a generational transition that is changing the nature of the audience for popular entertainment, and the entertainment industries are adjusting themselves uh, to follow. And um, uh, it, it, they are embracing the values and experiences of this new generation, particularly the diversity of it uh, in the stories they tell to a much greater extent than we have seen over the past several decades. And just as in the 70s, politics can be out of phase with pop culture. I mean, the electorate is older and whiter than the country. So at any given moment, Trump, like Nixon before him, can mobilize a lot of voters around the promise to stop these changes being driven by the younger uh, generation. Um, what they can't actually do 
is stop the changes. Um, they, can, they, can, they, can, they can win elections by promising to stop the changes, but they can't stop the changes. That's the lesson of the early 1970s. I mean, it wasn't that the left won all the elections after these ideas were cemented into popular culture. Obviously, Nixon won twice, then Reagan won in the 80s. But even after Nixon and Reagan won, we didn't go back to the 1950s. Women didn't go back into the kitchen. Um, uh, you know, minority groups didn't go back to kind of sitting uh, in the back of the bus. The country changed irrevocably despite the election results. And that all of that is similar. The big, the one big difference between then and now is that then it was essentially a generational transition that we were grappling with and negotiating. I mean, I think, as I've written, All in the Family kind of reduced the, you know, the entire generational conflict of the 60s into a single living room. Every right. Day. You say uh, in one of your, yeah. your third chapter, your March yep. 1974, the greatest night in television history, which is right. your chapter on All in the Family. Yeah. Um, but... So there was this generational transition in the early 70s. I think the big difference and what makes it even more volatile now is that we're having a generational transition, but the generational transition is also a racial transition, uh, which was not true. You know, the baby boom is 80% plus white. Um, but now we're not only kind of seeing a younger generation uh, kind of put forward its values and priorities, but that younger generation, those younger generations are the most diverse in American history. Uh, and in fact, the, whatever the generation born from 2014 on is going to be called, I don't think we have a name for it, it will be the first generation in American history that is majority non-white, kids of color. So Yeah, that's know, all very well, Ron, but let's, 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 let's stop being so PC for the moment. One of uh -huh. the things I love about your book is you love Chinatown. You have this wonderful it. description of, of one of the greatest movies in American history. Um, you have an amazing description also of Warren Beatty in Shampoo, which is another amazing film there's godfather 2 there's all this um, or there are all these masterful films um in particular and also music i don't see that now i've got yeah, john taplin uh, who i know you used as a as a as a resource on the show uh coming up uh next week he's got a book out the magic years he's quite reactionary on the cultural front where do you stand in terms of the cultural achievements of today's generation versus the generation of 1974? Well, the big challenge for today, well, obviously, as I said, I mean, the big plus is that more voices are being heard without question. I mean, the thing about 1974, that era, as I write about at length in the book, is that we began to see more expressions on film of experiences of Black people and Hispanic people and women. But so whether, whether it was Mary Tyler Moore or Alice doesn't live here anymore or uh, the Jeffersons or good times, the problem was, the challenge was that even as more of those experience stories were being told, they were still being told overwhelmingly by white men, older white men at that. Um, and, and, and so today, you know, there's clearly an emphasis on uh, allowing more diversity in who tells the stories. The problem, the challenge is that the, the hurdle that this generation is going to have to get over is figuring out ways to tell those stories that are universal and, and, and can speak to as broad an audience as Chinatown and Godfather 2 uh, did. Um, and look, I mean, I think some of these films uh, and, and TV things do, you know, I mean, like, yeah. What about other art forms? Um, uh, we, we've done a lot of shows, Ron, on um, no, video, video games, um, yeah. TikTok, uh, Instagram. Uh, do you think that uh, in 30 years when someone writes about the importance culturally of 2020 or 21, 
They'll be writing about different kinds of art forms. We're simply seeing uh, the death of the cinema, the death of traditional mainstream television um, or, or, or the music business. I mean, that's a heck of a good question. I mean, I, I don't have a definitive answer on that. I think that the splintering of the audience into all of these different options is a overriding reality. And in some ways, as I said before, it's good because it allows you to make, not every story has to you know reach the mass, mass audience. I mean, shows would get canceled, Andrew, in the 70s if they didn't have a third of the, the you know, a third of the people uh, at home watching them, which is now way beyond what anything can get uh, other than maybe the, uh, the Super Bowl. And that had a deadening effect originally because the idea was everything had to be acceptable to everybody. So there's good in allowing more niche. But again, the cost of it is, are you producing stuff that is essentially uh, speaking only to the choir, and and can you move the culture, the overall culture, uh, engage the overall culture in the way that some of these movies, but especially the TV, did? I mean, you know, the All in the Family uh, really is the beginning of the road that uh, that we're that we're living through now of, of peak TV because it, I think it unequivocally established the idea, which the 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 the, uh, the networks have rejected in the '60s, that the medium was a fit platform from which to comment on our society. I think there are lots of people doing that now very well. I mean, you know, you look at Fleabag, say, or Atlanta. I mean, these are much less Breaking Bad a few years ago or Mad Men. I mean, these are brilliant, brilliant shows. The question is, can they reach as broadly across the society when we are so fractionated, both in our choices and also somewhat in our silos? Um, I don't know. And and I don't even know if we have to or if it's possible. I really find myself wondering that. I think I think about that with politicians. I mean, can you talk, are, are there persuadable voters to talk to? You know, like, so if you're, if you're making Judas and the Black Messiah, is your goal- Which wasn't a bad film. What did you think no, of that film? No, no, I-, I But I, it, 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 it doesn't have the quality of a Chinatown or a shampoo. Well, right, well, all, look, we're also watching uh, a process of kind of a slimming down of, of Hollywood, right? I mean, if, if you're making movies for smaller audiences, primarily through uh, streaming, you're not going to have the budgets, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, but you don't need a big. I, I think this is an interesting. Maybe we'll we'll talk about it another time. Uh, you don't need a big budget to make a masterpiece, but that's another question. I do have one bone to pick with you. Yes. Um, you talk about 1974 and Los Angeles as the sort of the heart of American music, but something happened elsewhere. That the greatest, in my view, at least, the greatest album of the 20th century was made by Dylan in 74, and it was recorded in New York and Minnesota. Yes. You talk about yeah. Dylan in the book, but he recorded a terrible album in, in, in Los yeah. Angeles. So stuff was going on outside LA oh, as sure. well. Sure, absolutely. I mean, you know, as I say in the book, I mean, also stuff was going outside of 1974. I mean, this was a process that was building for years. And one of the reasons I picked 1974 as the year to focus on, I mean, one reason was because so much of this stuff happened in one year. You know, Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, Linda Ronstadt, and the Eagles all- Yeah, we haven't even started. talked about Jackson Brown. Yeah. I've been listening to uh, uh, the, the, uh, the song all morning, Rock Me on the Water. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute, but, but they, they all released career-redefining albums. It's the one year that All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore, and MASH are together in what was called The Greatest Night in Television History, and it's also a year of incredible uh, concentration of important movies with The Godfather 2, Chinatown, Shampoo, and Nashville, and Jaws being filmed, and, and Hearts and Minds, a documentary release. But the other reason I chose 1974 is because it really is the last year before the wave starts going in the other direction. And, you know, you point out, and, and, I, and I do point out in the last chapter of the book that in 
1975, not only with Blood on the Tracks, but also with Born to Run and also the emergence of CBGBs and the first kind of stirrings of Patti Smith and the Ramones, you begin to see the shift of musical influence back to New York and then from there on to London, uh, you know, with The Clash and the Sex Pistols and Elvis Costello and everything. Um, on TV, you begin to see the shift as Happy Days. Replay, you know, you have one, you have a family, uh, the kind of this bland mid-American family, Happy Days, replaces All in the Family as the number one show uh, on TV. And of course, the emergence of Jaws, the release of Jaws in 1975, which I pair in the book with the release of Nashville. People forget they were released about 10 days apart. And in many ways, I argue Nashville, while not the best movie of the early 70s, was kind of the culmination of what was happening in cinema in the early 70s, while, while Jaws obviously was the beginning of what came next. Right. Jaws was what was Jaws? Uh, Donald Trump, maybe. Uh, very briefly, uh, Ron, um, you you make Rock Me on the Water, the song by Jackson Brown, the sort of the intellectual heart of the book. It's yeah. not a song that many people will know. And Jackson Brown is not an artist that's, you know, in the in the in the Dylan Springsteen, Joni Mitchell right. class. What's the big deal about that song? I've been listening to it all morning and it is an amazing song. Well, I, you know, it's interesting. What initially attracted me to the song was the sense of openness that it conveyed. It really does sound like you're driving down the Santa Monica freeway on a sunny day with a surfboard out of the back of your VW convertible, you know, heading down the California incline sun. Uh, you know, well, what's the line in the Neil Young song? Get into the surf on time, you know, I mean, the sun glinting on the water. But as I got deeper into the book, um, so that was what initially attracted me to the song as, as the title. But as I got deeper into the book, I felt it. I'm playing it now in the background. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, what got me into, as I got deeper into the book, the resonance got even deeper because of what you were just playing. I mean, if you, if you listen to the song, it's, oh, people look among you, it's there your hope must lie. It's the first of three songs that Brown offers on each of his first three albums, Rock Me on the Water on the first one, For Every Man on the second one, uh, Before the Deluge on the third one, which is the one I write the most about, that came out in 1974, Laid for the Sky. In each of them, he grapples with what I think is the, the one most common thread through all of the pop culture we're talking about in the early 70s. The, the, the most common thread was the question of what of the ideals of the 60s could be preserved and made relevant in the 70s. And Rock Me on the Water, he is still optimistic that the change that you know, people were marching for and envisioning was going to come. By For Every Man, he's kind of hedging his bets. He's not sure if it's going to happen. And then by the third album, uh, Before the Deluge, uh, you know, in, in Late for the Sky, he's pretty clear that it isn't going to happen. And that pessimism continues on to probably uh, his other masterpiece album, The Pretender. But here's the thing, um, you know, and, and, and I think in that way, he, he followed the trajectory of many of the activists of the 60s, people who marched in the social movements of the 60s, who grew increasingly uh, you know, convinced, understandably, that the big fundamental change they were anticipating was obviously not going to happen. American society was not going to be reconfigured. But I, as I say in the book, what happened to Jackson Brown is what happened to Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda, is what happened to you know, millions of other people who we can't name, is that they found a way to look forward more often than they look back. And they found causes in their careers and in their lives that fulfilled uh, their sense that they were that they were contributing and making change and that ultimately um, while the the big transformation that Jackson Brown was waiting for for every man was his metaphor and the second album for for these big communal movements um, they, 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 they did they did not those did not occur but this they the, the society did change the, the, the way Americans live 
did change, and they did change because of the, of the changes in cultural attitudes that I argue was embedded uh, primarily into the American mainstream through the pop culture of the early 1970s. I haven't got you for much longer, Ron, but I, I've got to ask one political question. You, uh, you write in the book about Jerry Brown, uh, a peculiarly uh, Californian individual and family. Uh, today, of course, Gavin Newsom, who yeah. I, I don't know whether he's... Uh, Brownian, and I'm using, I'm inventing that word, but there's certainly a, a, a Californian quality to Newsom. Yeah. Uh, there's a recall again. Um, perhaps you might comment on politics in California in 2021, particularly this new Newsom recall and the kind of politician Newsom is in the context of 1974. Yeah. Well, you know, Brown was important to me because I believe he, along with Gary Hart, who was elected to the Senate in Colorado that same year, were really the first mainstream politicians to bring some of these ideas that were infusing things like All in the Family in Chinatown, this critique of American life, into the political system and to, and to undertake his own version of what I was describing, kind of road testing what of those ideals could be packaged in a way uh, that you could actually win elections on things like environmentalism and limits and greater inclusion of women and minorities. So he is a critical figure because his journey uh, very much parallels what I see happening in the pop culture at the time. And, and again, reflecting the same underlying forces of, of generational uh, change. Um, you know, the Newsom recall today, I, I find very odd because, you know, um, in, in an era of uh, in an era as polarized as we are today, where in the Wall Street Journal poll, NBC poll that came out this week, 55% of Republicans say they have a negative view of Jill Biden and only 5% have a but, 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 it, but, it, but it's a divided era in a post-ideological age, right? Yes. Isn't yeah, that right. the irony? It, well, it's, well, the irony is tribal, right? It's tribal. And so, like, I'm not shocked you can get enough people to sign a recall. I mean, in polling... The, you know, it's pretty consistent now. The share of people who support recalling Newsom is around 40 percent, which is about what the Republican got last time. If you if you if we had a national recall now, virtually everyone who voted for Trump would vote to recall. I'd say two thirds of the people who voted for Trump would vote to recall Biden, even though there's you know no plausible reason. I mean, you can't. Other, you know, his crime is his existence. I'm well, I think half of them would be voting just to annoy people like you and I. Right. Well, yeah. No. And, that, and so like. I mean, the re I mean, I, I don't think Newsom, I mean, I think it's obviously getting on the ballot. I don't think the recall will pass in the end unless he screws up again and the schools aren't open in the fall. But given the trajectory of what's happening on the virus in California and on the economy and given the kind of the underlying partisan basis of the state, I think it's highly, highly unlikely he gets recalled. And if anything, what this is showing is that the recall law is sort of anachronistic because it's like too easy to recall somebody in an era where everybody who votes against them, or you know, half, two thirds of the people who vote against them will be entirely willing to say that they should be recalled, but should have a higher bar than that. Well, Ron, I know you've got to run. You've got to go and watch uh, uh, the, the video uh, of, uh, of Joe Biden. Not a, I guess, was Joe Biden young in 1974? Uh, be an interesting... about, yeah, he would have been about 30. He was elected. He would have been about 31, I think. He was elected in 1972. Yeah. There's nothing very L.A. about Joe Biden, though, is no, there? No, nothing very L.A. about Joe Biden. Well, this book, Ron uh, Brownstein, most of you will know him as a political writer and analyst on television and in print. It's a really wonderful book. Rock Me on the Water, uh, 1974, the year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics. It will get you out to watch Chinatown and Shampoo and Godfather 3 and, and 
by Jackson Brown and all this other mm-hmm. stuff. It's a, it's a great book. I have to say, though, Ron, um, there's one thing missing from 1974. Yeah. Uh, the year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics. What about books? Is there a book that people could read from 74 in addition to your book, which is about 74, but of course written in 2021? I don't know the answer to that, actually, because I did not, I did not seriously. Didion, what did Didion write in, in 1974? Yeah, I mean, she, she would have been, I, 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 you know, by then, I don't know if she was still in California or, or, or in New York. The other thing, you know, the other thing that I, that I had to leave out because the, you know, they wanted me to stay focused on kind of the, the uh, impact on popular culture <clears throat> on kind of a way America's love. But it was a great period for art in LA too. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a real, there was a real resurgence in the art world. And <clears throat> I mean, it all was, I mean, the main thing is that, you know, people felt that they were, as I said, they were part of a wave that was building. People recognized, I mean, Beatty, Warren Beatty and Robert Town both talked to me about how much fun it was to have more freedom in expression and in subject matter than filmmakers had before. Rob Reiner told me that even when he was working on the Smothers Brothers, which was kind of, you know, the, the first attempt at, for TV to tap into youth culture, his friends thought he was a sellout and kind of like, you know, yeah. doing something boring for the man. But when all of the family came on the air, even his counterculture friends were impressed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you talk to Linda Ronson or Jackson Brown, they also, they knew they were excited by what was happening. There was this wave that was building, and what I really tried to do was capture that wave and show how it really crested and culminated in this one magical year of 1974. Well, it's a great book, and uh, the intro is brilliant. This comparison between BT and Nicholson, we haven't even talked about that. Worthy of another show, Ron Brownstein, you're always welcome on the show, whether it's talking about Trump, Biden, Los Angeles, 1974, Bruce Springsteen, have to have you back. Wonderful honor to have you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew.